Well, good morning, everybody. If you're going to be in Sunday school, then grab a handout from the tables. And then come on in and find your seats, please. As you do so, you can prepare by uh, finding Haggai. It's in there somewhere. After Psalms. (laughs) Before the New Testament. Again, there are handouts in the back and on the side over there, so I think, I think and hope those will be helpful. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed reading and rereading and studying uh, Haggai and um, am encouraged and spurred on by the truths that it contains, so I hope that you'll be blessed this morning in a, in a like manner. Why don't we pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the time that we have. Please make it profitable, even though it's quick. Help us to have a bigger view of who you are, um, just a, a greater understanding of your plan, and Lord, the, the seriousness of understanding your will for life and living according to it. And we thank you for your word, for the treasures that are in it. Sanctify us this morning. We pray through all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's easy in the midst of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them glass half-empty times of life, to have a, a reaction that, you know, we, we really shouldn't. And what I mean by glass half-empty times of life is, well, there, there's, there's something that's happening and you can either look at it in the sense of, well, that glass is half full and you can look at the good and you can look at what is going according to plan or you can see it as glass half-empty of, ah, uh, Things just aren't working out the way that we wanted. This is negative compared to what I had hoped for. Um, I see the, the, the downside of a situation. And in those types of times, whether it's the glass is half empty because of trouble with work, the glass could be half empty because of trouble with health, the glass could be half empty because of world events and political events, um, not going according to desire or expectation or plan. I mean, you name it, and suddenly life is just not what you'd hope for. And it's easy in those types of situations to do what I call turtle up, where you sort of pull in, and you, and you, you hunker down, and you, you pull in on yourself and you go into this, this self-preservation mode of all I'm going to do is try to survive this glass half-empty type of time. And the Jews in this time were going through a glass half-empty period. Haggai is writing to the Jews in the the time of the return from the exile. All right, I'm going to read a a portion from Ian DeGude's um, commentary where he says this. He says, The year was 520 B.C. Peace had finally returned to the Persian Empire after a lengthy period of political instability. The rebel leader, Galmada, who had stirred up trouble throughout the empire after the death of the former king, Cambyses, had been captured and executed. The newspapers of the day would have celebrated the fact that the new king, Darius, who we're familiar with, was now firmly in control. 
Meanwhile, in the empire's tiny backwater of Judah, nothing much was happening. Most of the people who had lived there had long since ceased to expect any dramatic intervention on God's part. Once they had hope, great expectations that God would do something special with their lives. Eighteen years earlier, the Persian emperor Cyrus issued a decree that allowed the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem, to Judah, and gave them permission to rebuild their temple. They left Babylon behind, excited to establish a new community of God's people that would be a light to the nations, a city on a hill. They would rebuild God's temple, and the Lord would restore His presence among them. Okay, so that's, that's you know, Cyrus's decree at the end of Second Chronicles, and we read about it in the beginning of Ezra 1.1 also. Cyrus decrees that the people come back, and there's this return, and all that takes place 18 years prior to Haggai's writing. Yet, once they returned to the land of Judah, the former exiles discovered that there was bitter opposition to their rebuilding plans among entrenched interests all around them. And we read of that in Ezra 4. Okay? They had many enemies who were strong. They were politically well-connected, and they were determined to frustrate their efforts. If you remember in Ezra, they wrote a letter to the king. This was after Cyrus, and they wrote a letter to uh, the, 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 the new king, and uh, they basically then had to stop working on the temple because their enemies were so well connected. And so by the time of Haggai's first prophecy, nearly 20 years later, the returned exiles had settled into an uncomfortable status quo, grinding out a meager daily existence while coming to terms with the difficulties of a plan B life. Why struggle to accomplish great things for the Lord, like rebuilding the temple when the days in which you live are self-evidently the days of small things? Why not just hunker down, keep out of sight, parentheses, turtle up, or do your best to improve your own personal and family situation? Was this the way that the promises of God to Israel would end? Not with a bang, but with a tremulous whisper? Was God's purpose for the people who had returned to the land promised to their forefathers that they should live out a plan B for their lives? By no means. If they thought that, they reckoned without the God of the promises. And so into this situation of quiet despair, God called and sent his prophet with a message of new hope for his people, a message that speaks hope to us as well. I love that as a, just as sort of a, a narrative setting of where they are in the midst of life and history as a people. So you can see on your handout there that they're in the post-exile time after the decree to return by Cyrus. The temple restoration had begun. Okay? They had laid the foundation and yet then they had met with such opposition and then even a, a king's decree to stop the work. And so they did. And so then for 18 years, they've just been waiting, living, as we're going to find out, kind of focusing on their own lives and their own means and their own sustenance and in their own priorities and their own desires. And so right here, this lands a square in Ezra 5.1, where he actually references Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet and their prophecies and how they actually encourage the people to rebuild the temple. And so this is probably around 520 B.C. All right, so 
Let's take a look right in the beginning. Haggai, and in case you've ever wondered, no, it's not Haggai. Okay, lots of people will say Haggai. In fact, if you ever want to make Pastor Rick, if you ever really want to ruffle his feathers, go up and say to him, I really love the book of Haggai. Whoa, man. Okay, that, that's, that's just, don't tell him I told you that. Just go have some fun with him. All right. All right, so Haggai, chapter 1, it says this. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Real quick pause. Those guys are the same guys who had started the work earlier and had been stopped. Okay, so there is continuity in the, in the Jewish leadership in this time. And so there's going to be a lot of just trying to keep in mind um, the setting that the Jews have been in, the discouragement for, for uh, you know, over a decade, almost two decades that they've had. All right, so God speaks by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts. We're going to see that name a lot. And again, we've said this before, the Lord of hosts always has an emphasis on God being the God of armies. Okay, that's what hosts is. Sabaoth, okay? The, the Lord of hosts, the Lord who controls and commands the armies. And so it makes sense, right? Because in the midst of experiencing opposition, in the midst of, you know, kind of unmet expectations and a half glass empty plan B kind of life, God's saying, look at me, I'm the Lord of hosts. Listen to me. All right, so verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, pause. This was probably a recurring conversation. I mean, think about it. The exiles had returned. They had laid the foundation, right? And, and, and uh, we, we see that they, they worked on the wall as well, but they had laid the foundation of the temple. And so over the course of life, the Jews were probably walking around going about their day, going about their commerce, going about their lives, and they would frequently pass by this outlined temple. Ah, man, we should, we should get back on that. Yeah, yeah, we really should. That, that, that is important. We really need to build the temple. I mean, that's why Cyrus gave us the decree to come back. Yeah, but then we had the, the, the other decree that had a stop, and yeah, we really should. get. Can you hear the conversations? We should, we should get that. Well, but just not, now's not the time. Now's not the time. We see the marker that was in the sixth month, which would have been in the busyness of harvest. Okay, so again, I just, I'm, I'm busy with the harvest. It's a, it's a time period when Darius had been elevating taxes. I just don't have the, we, I mean, we, look, look at us. We're, we're, we're in the midst of trying to harvest, and we're going to find out that the harvests have not been very good at all. And so it's been basically subsistence farming. And so, well, we just, we just got to try and get the harvest in, and now we've got all these taxes. And so, I mean, what kind of extra do we even have to, uh, to give towards rebuilding the temple? Now is just not the time. And so that's what the Lord says. This people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. 
then verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. So the word of the Lord comes and lays out the crux of the matter. God says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord remains desolate? It's an interesting phrase, paneled houses, and it it refers to like finish work, but it even more specifically is should have been very familiar to the Jews because it was used to refer to Solomon's temple when it had been built in terms of the paneling of the temple. And so there's a little bit of a double entendre here where the prophet is saying, is it time for you to dwell in your finished work houses that, boy, have a lot of familiarity to the finished work of the temple that had been built? Kind of a, kind of a poke in the eye right there. And the crux of the matter is <clears throat> the people had put work into building. They had put work into living. They had put work and invested energy and time and finances into themselves. They had, they had invested. The crux of the matter was that they had developed, they had turtled up, right? In the midst of a half glass empty time, they had turtled up and said, we're going to focus on ourselves and we're going to live for ourselves. We're going to take care of ourselves. We're going to make sure that we can do and have and and." And enjoy what we can because, frankly, everything else out there is just hard and rough. And so God calls them out on this. And he says, consider your ways. He says, think about it. Look at your life. You've sown so much, but you're not harvesting very much. You are not getting fruit from life the way that you've lived it when you're focused on yourself. You're earning money just to... Have the coins fall out of your purse you know, along the path as you walk around and then you get to the place where you're going to buy your food and lo and behold, you just got a couple of coins left when you had a full purse before. He's, he's, he's saying you just, you're not making it and there's a reason why you're not making it. So verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And I think that's a word for us right now. We've got to make sure we're stopping to consider our ways. We can't just turtle up and go through life trying to survive we have to consider our ways along with the Jews of that day and make sure that we're thinking rightly and acting appropriately so God says in verse 7 consider your ways go up to the mountains bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified says the Lord You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. 
Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labors of your hands. Consider your ways, God says. They're having such a frustrating and fruitless time of life because they're caring only about themselves and they're not caring about the things of God. And so God rebukes them for that. But then he gives them instructions for repentance. He says, hey, if you want to remedy this situation, then here's what you need to do. Start to care about things of me. Start to care about the things of your Lord, your covenant God. And his instructions are clear. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple because of what that shows. In order to do that, they would have had to stop what they were doing. They would have had to stop living for themselves, stop pursuing their own interests, and care more about the things of God in order to go and find that wood and bring it and sacrifice of their means and of their time in order to please God and glorify God. That's what he says in verse 8, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. Isn't that interesting? Just, just two, two main drivers of motivation right there. If you want God, God's desire is for his people to please him and to glorify him. So he says, consider your ways. Then, verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. And so this is where Ezra 5.1 shares that because of the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, the people of Judah started the work of rebuilding the temple. This was 23 days after the initial declaration of Haggai to the people. 23 days afterward, they take action. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that, because that's not a very a strong pattern in Israel's history, right, where they actually listen to the word of the Lord. And we're going to hear about that later on. But this is a time when the leaders and the people respond rightly. They repent and they obey and they show reverence. But I find it interesting, if you look in verse 14, they, they obey, they repent, they show reverence, and then God stirs up their spirit. And man, you think Haggai is just so repetitive, but he's being very specific here. He's saying, 
He stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the civic leader, the governor. He stirred up the spirit of Joshua, the religious leader, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And because of his stirring up of their spirit, they came and worked. So they repented and showed reverence. They understood the neglect that they had been, um, been, been committing. And they showed reverence. They adjusted their attitude. And then very much like Philippians 2.13, right, which, which says that, that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is that right here. God works within them, and especially because of their reverential and obedient orientation of their attitude in response to God's word, then God stirs up the spirit of all of them, and the result is they then work it out, and they obey God. And so they, they, they took action. They didn't sit around waiting, wondering what was going to happen. They said, no. We know what God says. He's stirring up our spirits, so we're going to do it. No excuses, no delays. We're just going to go and do it. Sometimes this, um, this passage can be used in a little bit of a wrong way in the sense of, you know, okay, so therefore the parallel of this kind of a passage is, hey, don't make your houses nice because make sure you give all your money to the church building program, right? That's not the point. The point is priorities. Matthew six thirty three says, seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you okay don't prioritize those things seek first God's kingdom God's work God's priorities God's will that's the point so whether that manifests in a building whether that manifests in the evangelism that you have been putting off whether that manifests in the the pursuit of relationship with Christ that you keep deferring, whether that manifests in the generosity of spirit that you keep saying, well, I just don't have the funds or the time for right now. God says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, just as he says to these people, prioritize my house. Because by prioritizing my house, you're prioritizing me. This is why I brought you back from the exile, was to reestablish you as my people for the nations, in the nations. All right, so this is not the um, let's, let's fundraise for a new building sermon. This is the consider your ways and your priorities and your expressions of, of importance in your life, in your values, in your decisions, in your time, in your, in your money. In your affections and all these things. Chapter 2. This is the next month. It's a new oracle. 
And quite likely, if you look in Ezra, there has been a renewed, uh, a renewed sort of obstacle set before them. The people around them have now come back and said, what are you doing? Who said you could restart this? Okay. And so they're now facing new opposition. They're facing new obstacles to the rebuilding. And so on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to all the same people. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, all those who had repented and showed reverence and started to work and now had been encountering more obstacles and more stumbling blocks before them. Speak to them, verse 3, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing <laughs> in comparison? Man, God does not whitewash the truth, does he? I mean, this, this happened back in Ezra, uh, Ezra 3, I think it was, where the people laid the foundation and then there was such an uproar of celebration and such an uproar, literally, of wailing because of how like, small and insignificant the new foundation was compared to Solomon's temple, that those sounds mixed and you couldn't even tell what was what. People were celebrating and people were wailing and there, 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 was, this, there was this stark realization that this new temple, man, wasn't all that much to sniff at compared to what Solomon had built before. And God acknowledges that. He says in verse 3, does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But, but, verse 4, now, even though it seems like nothing, and even though you're encountering obstacles and more opposition to building this thing that seems like nothing, Take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And what's the result of taking courage? And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Work, for I am with you. Verse 5, as for the promise which I made you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. So this is important. He says, take courage in the midst of those discouragements. Take courage and work for I am with you. That should have been all that people needed. That should be all that we need as well. I mean, think about it. God said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to be your God and hence the tabernacle, God in their midst and hence, you know, when, when, when they sinned many times and, and God finally said, okay, I'm, I'm done with you. Moses was distraught because he, says, because he says, God, if you don't go with us, if you're not with us, then this is nothing because you being with us is everything. And so this is God's reassurance to them. Work for I am with you. That's ultimately our hope as well. If you think about Revelation 21, the significant changes of, of what the eternal state is, 
the scarlet thread throughout that whole idea, the, the glowing beacon of brilliance is God's presence with his people, such that there isn't even a sun or a moon because God dwells with his people. The presence of God, that's what he promised in verse 5. That's, that was the promise which I made you when I come out of Egypt. Now, it looks different because they're not seeing a cloud and a pillar, but those are physical manifestations. And look what he says. My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. So even though this looks like nothing, that physical reality of the size of that temple foundation doesn't look like much at all. And you don't see the cloud, and you don't see the fire, and you don't see the tabernacle, and you don't see the temple. Take courage and act because of the spiritual reality of my spirit being in your midst. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house, house with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the formal. Former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Do you think he wants the people to remember that he's the Lord of hosts? I think so. He draws out some more of this idea of you know, kind of the physical reality compared to the spiritual reality. We've seen that there's always already this comparison of how they didn't really see the manifestation of God's presence in the tabernacle or in the temple or in the cloud or in the fire, but instead God assured them, hey, there's a spiritual reality of my spirit abiding with you. They didn't see that the temple's physical glory was going to be much at all, and yet God is saying, oh, you just wait. The spiritual glory, the actual glory of this house is going to be greater than the formal, former, even though what you see makes you want to weep because of the comparison. And in the midst of opposition, he reminds them that that physical opposition of the, of the, the people and the, the, the rulers of the land around them who are opposing them, that diminishes to nothing compared to the power of God. When he says, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. And Hebrews 12, 26 makes it clear that this this idea of shaking the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and the nations, that idea is, a, is an idea of judgment and of destruction. And so again, what, what, are, what are these people of opposition compared to the power of God? And so God gives them a glimpse of his plan. God gives them a glimpse of the spiritual realities that he wants to trump their awareness of the physical things in front of them. A little bit of a side note, we get an interesting glimpse here because of where we are in the timeline. We get an interesting glimpse here in this idea of prophetic timelines. Okay, we're looking back after the fact, 
right? And so we see that the writer of Hebrews takes this verse and still points it even further forward, indicating that these verses apply to the end time judgment, the ultimate judgment in which then God brings about the fulfillment of his kingdom plan. That's what he says. We're not going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all the nations, and they'll come with the wealth of the nations, and I'll fill this house with glory. In Revelation 21, when God establishes the kingdom, the kings of the earth bring their wealth, they bring their glory into it. But then in verse 9, we know that when he says the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. We know that Jesus is the one who makes those things true. So the prophet and the people are seeing God has said this about the future. But they don't see that there's a, you know, further in the horizon this is going to take place and nearer in the horizon this is going to take place. And so we're blessed even at this point to be able to say look at how God has already brought some of this about. God himself in flesh walked in that temple and brought peace. And as sure as that happened, so sure is the ultimate and future fulfillment of God's sovereign and powerful plan of shaking the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and shaking the nations and establishing himself as king of all and a new heavens and a new earth in which there will be no more tears and no more sin. And that's a spiritual reality that we need to remember and trust in. But then in verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, all right, so this is a couple months later, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? This is the, the, the priests are getting game show grilled by God and his prophet. Can you answer this one correctly? And the priest answered, no, which is correct. Carrying holy meat and touching holy meat to a loaf of bread does not make that loaf of bread holy. Holiness doesn't transfer. And then Haggai said in verse 13, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these things that he just talked about, will the latter become unclean? Can I, get, can I get this one right? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Ding, ding, ding. They got it right. Then Haggai said, so is this people. Whoa. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Uncleanness transfers. God is driving home a point, I think, that the people, even though they are now about the work of the Lord, they need to recognize that they are still a needy people who are, who are basically transferring uncleanness everywhere that they go. And he's driving home the point that simply because, you know, they're they're doing something a little different doesn't mean that they then deserve something or warrant something or have earned something. But now he's going to drive home the point that his grace is amazing. 
in verse 15, he says, But now do consider from this day onward. Okay, so this day being the 24th day of the ninth month. Do consider from this day onward. Look back. Before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. We heard that already in chapter 1. And when one came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, and yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. That's all looking back, saying, what have you done? You've transferred uncleanness, and that's all. And yet, verse 18, do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded. So there's some sort of formal day at hand here where God and the people are saying, yes, this is the day when the temple is, maybe it was consecrated or maybe it was just sort of formally celebrated as being established. Consider, is the seed still in the barn? means they've probably planted it and are waiting, waiting to see even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree. It has not borne fruit. They haven't flowered yet. It's not like, you know, God said, okay, do this, and then suddenly, poof, you're going to have all this this abundance right before you immediately. And yet, in God's grace, yet from this day on, I will bless you. God's grace to his people. It's amazing. And then it comes again. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai, same day, 24th day of the month, saying, now this one just gets a laser focus. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the kingdoms of the nations, destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and the riders will go down every one by the sword of another. You think God's calling to mind anything in particular? The exodus? The conquest? Look, remember Zerubbabel, what I did? I'm going to do it again, but on a greater scale even. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And this sounds random, but this is so laden with, with biblical weight and covenant weight. See, when he starts calling Zerubbabel my servant, the Jews are familiar with Isaiah. We don't have time to go there, but if you look in Isaiah 42 and 52 and 53, it talks about the servant, talks about the messianic one. And so he's drawing that theology into this person of Zerubbabel who has obeyed and been reverent and led his people well. And he says, not only are you my servant, uh, David was called his servant as well. If you look in Ezekiel 34, write, write this one down and go look this up later because I've gone too long and so I'm going to run out of time. I know it's a big shock. But write this, Ezekiel 34, 23 to 24. Okay, pen should be moving. I'm serious. This is a really good one. You want to go chase this down. Ezekiel 34, 23 to 24. And go look at that uh, in terms of the idea of my servant and how it relates to David and the Davidic covenant. Because then he goes on and he says, I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Everything, you've got to remember, hinged upon the, 
um, the Davidic covenant as an expression and extension of the Abrahamic covenant because the Messiah and the eternal king was supposed to come from David. Yet, in Jeremiah 22, the current ruler at the time, Jeconiah, was so bad that God said, even if you were a signet ring, see the same term? Even if you were a signet ring, I would tear you off and I would throw you apart and there will not be a son of yours who will sit on the throne. And everybody goes, ah, it's done. No more Davidic covenant. Because if, 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 if a, a ruler can't come from Jeconiah, then we're done. But he's saying, Zerubbabel, in the line of David, I will make you like a signet ring, like a seal, a guarantee of a promise, of a word accomplished. For I have chosen you, which is what it ultimately always comes down to, right? God chose David. So David, I'm going to make you this covenant. God chose Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you this covenant. God chose Zerubbabel. And if you read in Matthew 1, the lineage of, of Jesus, boom, there's Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the servant, signet ring, resulting in God's covenant to David coming to fruition in the person of Christ. Hundreds of years later, where hundreds of years earlier, there had been all of this kerfluffle over the covenant with David and how's it going to happen. And, and yet, just the, 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 the scope, to me at least, was mind-blowing in terms of the scope of God's word, his plan his faithfulness, his ability to execute his plan, and his goodness to his people. It's just amazing. And so it's not really a random end. Oh, he's having this chat with Zerubbabel. No, he's reestablishing his faithfulness. Not that it's ever been... Um, it would have been questioned, I'm sure, by the people, and not that it's ever been shaken from God's end, but he's reaffirming to them his faithfulness to that covenant in amazing ways. So what are some takeaways? You can see there primary lessons for living in a glass half empty, or half, half glass empty? Glass half empty time. <laughs> if it's a half glass that's empty, you've really got nothing. So maybe that's even more appropriate. But hey, remember, consider your priorities. And again, I'm using the word consider on purpose. Consider the importance of spiritual realities. Consider your great need for grace. Consider God's sovereign faithfulness. But then in the midst of life today, don't let the press of the current day squeeze out Godward priorities. I get it. I really do. It is so easy to be so overwhelmed by life and work and parenting and music lessons and sports and, and entertainment and finances and job training and everything else, health, relationships, all of that is so easy to have it press out the Godward priorities. But God, God says, like we've heard, I've saved you, I've adopted you, and I've prepared good works from beforehand that you should walk in them. And he lays them out for us in this. And so our priority in the midst of all our days, in the midst of all the busyness, should be to say, how do I live this out? And, and, and not to get distracted by all those things. 
I'd encourage us all to foster an appreciation for spiritual realities that trump physical realities. And I, I have to regularly basically kind of like discipline my mind in this way because it's so easy for me to, to think, no, 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 this is the reality. This is how things really are in terms of how I look at the world around and how my heart and my flesh are tugged towards things of the flesh, things of earth, whether it's food or money or people or, or uh, a house or uh, cars or, or my oil-leaking Jeep or what am I going to do about that? You know, and it's, it's easy to get so distracted by all those things and, and yet to remember the, the spiritual realities of God and salvation and eternity and our, 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 our citizenship of that country as we pass through this life those are spiritual realities that trump those things, which is why in Colossians we're told to fix our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. Right? But that's hard. You have to discipline your minds and your hearts that way. Third, cling to the covenant faithfulness of God as it applies to even you. God will not leave you nor forsake you. God will bring you to home, to heaven. And as we were even celebrating the Lord's table this morning, anticipate God's future work and fulfillment. And the Lord's table should remind us that Jesus is coming back because we celebrate the Lord's table until he returns. All right, so anticipate that. Anticipate his work, his return, his rule, his reign, and all those things. Next week it'll be Zechariah, and then we will have done all of the minor prophets in a whirlwind tour that has been edifying to my soul and hope it's been to yours as well.